Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. Carol Levesque, just reminding you, I'm putting your songbook over here. <laughs> oh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord on this bright, sunny day, is it not? It is good to have to have, yeah, easy for me to say, to have Pastor Ron and Lois back from the sunny south of Arizona. It is good to have John and Joni back from the sunny south of Florida. And others, all of you, it is good to see your faces. Ah, let's have just a moment of silence and thought. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Okay. Folks, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap by reading last week's verses of Scripture. And, boy, we are on to something big today. We're on to something big. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me. Give me your absolute best effort to stay focused, awake, and hear all the words that I have to say. <clears throat> I know I've been told that I have this audio ambient voice that puts people to sleep. I've seen it firsthand. You can't fool me. I can see you. I see all of you. All right. We've had our joke for the morning. I want to tell you that what we are going to be listening to today is the first apostolic sermon. The Apostle Peter gives the first sermon of the church age. And it is perhaps the most powerful, most effective sermon ever given in the history of the church. Because while we're not going to cover that portion today, we're going to be covering that in the next sermon, 3,000 souls were saved as a direct result of that sermon. So I think maybe you want to pay attention to what Peter has to say here. And I'm going to try my best to lay it out concisely for you. But I want to review the scriptures from last week. So I don't have them on the screen. So you're going to have to listen to my smooth, melodious voice. When the day of Pentecost had come, this, by the way, is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Now, there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, imagine that, devout men from every nation under heaven. That is an expression that is not literally the case. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Now, mind you, they may all be Jews, but these are people who grew up because of the diaspora of the Jewish nation, amongst all of these nations that are named here and others. This is not an exhaustive list, but we begin in verse 9. Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia between the two rivers, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Gentiles who had uh, converted to Judaism, and Cretans, or Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, they're saying. And what are they saying? What are they saying in their own tongues? And they, <clears throat> whoops, I lost my place. <laughs> 
we hear them speaking in our own tongues of, this is in verse 11, the mighty deeds of God. You know what the Bible calls it when you are speaking of the mighty deeds of God? Prophesying. Do you know that? See, prophesying isn't just telling of future events, foretelling, it's forthtelling as well, speaking of God, glorifying God, witnessing about God. What God has called us to do as followers of Jesus Christ, which is to bear witness wherever we have opportunity to bear witness. And that was what they were doing in languages that they should not have been able to speak. This was amazing. And so in question, excuse me, verse 12, the question is asked, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? And verse 13, the others on the other side of the equation, and as always, those trolls in the crowd, we know it now more on social media than we ever have, the ones that are saying, and, but others were jeering and saying, they are full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. These people are just drunk. I don't know about you, but in my former alcoholic days, I might have said a lot of things when I got drunk, but I never, to my any reports whether I, or my memory, ever learned how to speak a foreign language perfectly so that other people could understand it. <clears throat> so obviously that's just dumb. It's just dumb. So... Let us, as I'm about to open up into the sermon, I want, this is the scripture that we're going to have on the screen every week, for the, every Sunday for the month of February. And it is a reminder as we get into the scripture, what the scripture says about itself. Follow along with me if you will, as you can see it's from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The power, the power of the Word of God. That's what I want you to remember. And it'll be up there for the next four weeks to help you, in case you haven't already memorized it, to memorize it. To make it part of you. Okay. <clears throat> Acts part four. The title, Peter's Bold Proclamation. Peter's Bold Proclamation. What can we learn from observing Peter's first apostolic sermon? Ask yourself that question. Say it with me. What can we learn from observing Peter's first apostolic sermon? Don't you want to know? Are you curious? I sure hope so. Let's start right off with verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the other eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, know this, and pay attention to my words. Do you see his boldness here? About seven weeks before this sermon at Jesus' trial, seven weeks and a day or two or three, let's say seven and a half weeks, while Jesus was on trial, Peter was denying Christ vehemently out of fear for his own safety. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus, even though he loved him dearly. He was af afraid for his own safety, seeing what was happening with Jesus there. And now look at him. What in the world has gotten into him? Or perhaps I should ask, who has gotten into him? Who? Who with a capital W has gotten into him? Well, it's not just that. There's another factor in this whole thing. What has happened in the last seven and a half weeks or so, or that is, it's actually been more than that, I take it back. It's been 
well, I'll cut to the chase. What has happened in the last seven plus weeks to bring about such a dramatic change in Peter? Stop and think about it. Go back with me, those of you who are here with me, in the Gospel of John. The other Gospels cover essentially the same territory, a lot of the same territory. But remember this. Peter has been enjoying quality time with his risen master, Jesus Christ. During that time, Jesus forgave him. Remember? Restored him and gave him orders to feed his sheep, to feed Jesus' sheep. Right? Then he saw Christ ascend into the heavens and out of their sight. Remember that? We just read about that. Then two angels told Peter and other disciples that they would see Christ return in the same manner. Okay, if all of that happened to you, you know, part of scripture memorization or meditation, meditation actually, is putting yourself in the picture. So put yourself in Peter's shoes, in the shoes of the other people who are the witnesses there in that place. Do you think that, that those experiences would make you bold to talk about Jesus? Huh? Can I get an amen? This is history we're reading about. These are not cleverly devised fables. This is history. Even Bible-critical scholars have had to accept that uh, Dr. Luke, when writing the Gospel of Luke, may be the finest, most accurate historian of the ancient times. That's a fact. That's a fact. So, now, as if all of that wasn't enough, if all of that wasn't enough, Peter, the 11 other apostles, and 108 other true followers, 120 of them in total, have been obediently waiting, as Jesus told them, to wait in Jerusalem. They've been obediently waiting for the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them about that, remember? And during that 10-day wait, the 120 have been together in prayer, in studying the Scriptures, prayer and studying the Scriptures, and worshiping in the temple, and in the upper room, and enjoying fellowship. Does everybody remember that navigator's wheel with the four spokes? Those are the four spokes. Prayer, Scripture, fellowship with your fellow believers, and witnessing, sharing Jesus. It's all there, folks. They're following a very simple but profoundly effective formula. Now that we're getting into what's happening, what we're reading about in this account on the day of Pentecost, Christ's followers have not only been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but are also filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not exactly the same. There is a distinction between the two. Scripture draws a distinction between the two. We as believers, if you are a blood-bought, born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ, already have the Holy Spirit within you. But being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a different story. That takes a commitment on your part. A commitment. Now, this bold Holy Spirit-filled new apostle stands up and begins his first sermon by quickly addressing the question in verse 12. What does this mean is the question. And the mockers of verse 13, who addressed them as being, excuse me, accused them as being drunk. Now later on, this same apostle wrote a verse in 1 Peter 3.15, and the verse says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's a good verse for you to memorize. Good verse for you to memorize. Peter is doing exactly as he said in this verse. He is making a defense. Now, as we go through this book of Acts, his boldness will be, you'll see, is not rare anymore. This boldness, um, we'll observe, 
happens is the immediate response throughout uh, the book of Acts <clears throat> from anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. You know that? You'll see it. If you've ever been filled with the Holy Spirit, you know it yourself. You know that his cup runneth over expression? When you spend enough time with the Lord in prayer and in the word and in fellowship with his people, you cannot help but have your cup be filled to overflowing and sharing Jesus. You can't even hide it. Even if you're not even saying the words, people will see and tell by your thoughts and your words. Well, they can't read your thoughts, but your attitude, your words, your actions make you stand out. You are bearing witness even before you speak a single word. Imagine the power of the words coming from your mouth when you are completely committed and submitted and yielding to the Holy Spirit and that tongue is under the power of God himself speaking the Holy Scriptures themselves. Imagine the power of your witness. Imagine the power of that. Okay, let's move along to verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. Right off the bat, immediately, he begins referring to the Holy Scriptures. That is the power for us when we bear witness, is to know and to speak the Scriptures. What did we just read in Hebrews 4.12? The word of God is living and active. All you have to do is let it out. And the word of God, Scripture says, cannot return void. You understand the power in that? Do you understand the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Scriptures in your hands, in your mouth, in your life? The power we are seeing in this Acts chapter 2 is available to you. The Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit is available to us. So anyway, he jumps right in. He makes an explanation. They're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No one in their right mind would think that they were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. But you see... Those trolls like you see on, on the internet, they just want to knock you down, buddy. They don't care whether it's true or even logical or reasonable or rational. They just want to knock you down. Okay? We shouldn't be surprised when the enemy of God is trying to knock us down, to take us down a peg. But you see... When you are in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing on the Word of God, and so forth and so on, you are essentially invincible. It has been said that when you're doing all of those things, and you are walking in the Spirit and doing as God has called you to do, that you cannot be taken out. You are invincible until God is done with you doing your work for Him. That's a quote. I don't remember where it comes from. came off the top of my head. So, <clears throat> for those people who are not drunk, verse 16, but this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, I want you to know that Peter immediately gets into the Scriptures, and God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who authors the Scriptures through the prophets in the Old Testament, through the apostles in the New Testament, through the witness of those people that Luke, in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, has cataloged. The historian, has, he has made this the case. So, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through his prophets, apostles, and remember that these capitalized words that you are about to see, that they are they're read in verses 17 through 21 that we'll see, but they come directly, Peter is quoting directly, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, for you note-takers out there. I keep doing this. That's a sign. If you're watching the YouTube video, take notes if you want, or if you're here taking notes. Joel 2, 28, verses 32. Let's get into it, verse 17. And it shall be in the last days. Who says? 
God says that I, who's that? God, will pour out my, who's that? God. Spirit, who's that? God. On all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. He's speaking to the Jews. Daughters prophesying? What are you talking about? With very rare exception. That just wasn't done in Judaism. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will have dreams. Notice that the young men are having dreams and visions and the old men who sleep a lot more <laughs> are having dreams. As, as a bit of an old man myself, I totally get it, brother. Can you say amen, brothers? <laughs> now notice in verse 17 it says, in the last days. I just want to clarify that last days in Scripture is the time period between Christ's first and second advents. The Jews are hearing this as the messianic age. This phrase is saying to them, Peter is shocking them by saying this. doesn't seem shocking to us, but to them it's shocking because Peter is saying that the Messianic age has begun. This sign that you've seen of people speaking in languages that they do not know, as though they are native speakers, is a miracle sign, a sign miracle of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so he is saying, in verse 18 as well, He's speaking of what was happening on that day, and this was a shocking claim to the Jews, because he is saying outright, even though you're not seeing it in our culture, which is why I'm explaining it to you now, to them, it means only one thing, that the Messiah has come. Do you understand how shocking that is? The long-awaited Messiah has come. There's been no prophecy for 400-some-odd years since the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. This came as a <laughs> across their face. It woke them up. It probably irritated some of them. How can this be? So in verse 18, and even on my male and female servants, I, who's I, will pour out my spirit, who's that? in those days, and they will prophesy. What were they just doing just a few minutes before this? Prophesy. The Apostle Peter, in his sermon, is telling them, explaining to them, that this is what Joel is talking about. Prophecy is being fulfilled before their very eyes. Verse 19, And I will display wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, that, obviously, as you can see, was not happening at this point in time. What is that? That's prophecy further down the road. Beyond us, even. That's prophecy that has not yet happened. You want to read more about that prophecy? Well, there's some more of that in the Old Testament prophecy books. There's also more of that in the book of Revelation. And, shameless plug... We're studying the book of Revelation at 6.15 on Tuesday nights in that room across the hall. If you want to come and sit in and listen in, participate or not participate. You can sit there like a bump on a log if you want. We won't bother you. We really won't. We won't bite. Just a shameless plug there. Okay, back on with the sermon. The remainder of this quote, like I said is pointing forward to the great and glorious day of the Lord. And these are events surrounding the second coming of Christ that we can read more about in the book of Revelation, like I said. Now, verse 20. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. What did I just say about that? Now, notice... We've changed. We go to verse 21. It's no longer the capital letters anymore. Now we're back to the Apostle Peter preaching his sermon. And he says, 
And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm sorry, I take that back. That is still capitalized, isn't it? I had a little brain cramp there. I hope you can forgive me. That is from the prophet Joel. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calls on the name of the Lord, what does that mean? Does that mean, hey Jesus, and now you're saved? No. What it means is, and this is a metaphorical saying, you can say the name Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Christ, whatever you want to say, this is a metaphorical expression. It is used throughout Scripture that means that you personally, you personally are calling on Him to be your Lord. You know what is another word for Lord? Perfectly accurate translation. Master. Master. You're asking Him to take over your life. To change you. To change your life from that point on. That's what calling on the name of the Lord is. There's so much packed into that little phrase, but that's what it means. And they understood that in that day. Many Christians nowadays don't fully comprehend that, but there it is. Is that not wonderful that just like looking up How wonderful is our Lord and Savior that you can simply call upon His name and ask Him, and He will be your Lord. Is that not wonderful? You know, we don't know who the Lord will ultimately save, but in our witness, we are called to get out there and share Jesus. You can do it through social media. You can do it, you know, there's a song by Reba McIntyre from years ago talking about all the different forms of communication available these days. And then she asked the question, why haven't I heard from you? Okay? There's a saying, a little, word, a little story. Henry Ford it was widely known, spread all through the media at that time, the newspapers. That's basically what was available. Henry Ford had bought a huge insurance policy, a life insurance policy. And you know, a close personal friend of his, who was an insurance salesman, came to him later on and asked him, Henry, We've been friends all this time. You know I'm in the insurance business. Why didn't you get this huge insurance policy from me? And Henry responded with a simple statement. You never asked. You never asked. How many people do you know that the Lord may eventually, ultimately, draw to Jesus unto salvation and sanctification whom you could have led to the Lord, but you never asked. That insurance salesman, by failing to ask his good friend Henry Ford if he would like some life insurance, probably missed out on a commission that could have let him retire right there on the spot. Look at the opportunity that you are passing up. When you are failing to ask people if they know Jesus, your friends, your family, acquaintances, every opportunity given to you, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. Look, folks, I am not trying to browbeat you or intimidate you or make make you feel guilty about this. I just want you to know that our wonderful Lord and Savior has a fantastic salvation plan that we can participate in by being obedient and sharing his gospel message. We are not responsible for the results. We are only responsible for scattering the seed of the word of God, of the gospel message. That's it. We're not responsible for the results. Scripture says it's God that brings forth the increase. He's the one that brings forth the fruit. So, I digress. So, now we have come. to the end of this. And in verse 22, the Apostle Peter goes on with his sermon. And he says, men of Israel, who's he talking to? The men of Israel. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Hear the boldness, the assertiveness, the power in these words. There is no doubt in his mind. There's no lack of conviction. There's no fear as he's speaking. Remember, he's speaking to the same crowd that just seven and a half weeks before said, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. He's standing in hostile territory. He's risking everything. The same crowd that wanted to kill Jesus is the same crowd he's telling about Jesus. You get it? You understand what's happening here? Let me ask you, would you go stand in the heart of an Iranian or an Iraqi citizen and be a street preacher telling people about coming to faith in Jesus? No. <laughs> yeah. You probably have your head lopped off. Okay? That's what Peter is doing here, potentially. I just want you to understand what's going on. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, he says. There's a little backstory there. That's the sign they put over him on the cross. Part of it, Jesus of Nazareth. A man. Look at that word, a man. It's capitalized for a reason. Because this isn't any man. This is God-man. God had become a man. Entered into human history as a man. A man attested to you. Authenticated to the Jews by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Is Peter being weak and wimpy and wishy-washy here? He is not. I love it. Don't you wish you had this boldness? You can. There's no reason you can't. Look at that boldness. Amazing. Amazing. Acts 4.12, by the way, speaks to this. Jesus Christ is the very heart, the center, the core, the foundation of the gospel message, like I said. Acts 4.12 says this. And there is, for you note takers, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. One way, folks. One way. And what is the plan that God has to share this message? It's us. It's me. It's you. There is no plan B. We're the plan. And he's commanded us to do this. Now we get into... Serious meat and potatoes in this next verse. Serious meat and potatoes. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. All right. If you fall asleep, slap yourself. Okay, you don't have to do that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> verse 23. This man, see it again, it's capitalized. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Do you think the room was silent after Peter said that to this crowd of thousands of people? He's pointing the finger at them. Talk about boldness. <laughs> It's almost as though Peter's saying, I dare you. But that's not his focus. His focus is in proclaiming a bold proclamation of exactly who Jesus the Christ is, was, and always shall be. This man delivered over by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
All right, so who are these godless men it's speaking of? The Roman soldiers who physically tortured Jesus and nailed him to the cross. Those are the godless men. You could say that the Jewish leadership, the people who played an active role in directing the Romans to do this, are also the godless men. So who is Peter addressing when he says, you nailed to the cross? You could say that. But you could also back up to verse 22, and it says, men of Israel. Okay? He's speaking of the nation of Israel not recognizing, by and large, now mind you, there are some Jews, in fact, a number of Jews, prominent Jews, who wrote the New Testament, who did not, in fact, miss the fact that the Messiah had come and visited them. Right? But he's pointing to these who have rejected their own Messiah. Okay? You nailed him to the cross. Well, how is that possible? Proverbs 21.1 says this. Note takers, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. God was, and this is not scripture anymore, this is me talking. God was, as always, in complete control and he leaves nothing to chance. You understand me? You get it? How amazing is our God that he doesn't leave his plan to chance. He is in control. So what does it mean? What is, what is this saying? Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Hmm? Well, Isaiah 53.10 puts it this way. Note takers, Isaiah 53.10. But the Lord desired to crush him, capital H, causing him, capital H, grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, both capital H's, he, capital H, will see his, capital H, offspring. He will prolong his days, both capital H's, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. From before the foundation of the world, this salvation plan was in place. It was decreed before the earth was even created. Understand? Has that ever dawned on you before? The absolute sovereignty of our amazing, wonderful God. Leave nothing to chance. Another cross-reference. Acts 4, 27 and 28, note-takers. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, you was capitalized, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and verse 28, to do whatever your, capital Y, hand and purpose predestined to do. It was all planned. It was all going according to plan, and God is directing it. 2 Timothy 1.9 puts it this way. 2 Timothy 1.9, note takers, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us, granted to us, in Christ Jesus from all eternity. All eternity includes eternity past. Granted in eternity past. Okay? We move on to verse 24. <clears throat> okay. Where am I? Am I getting myself lost here? Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. I did skip over that, didn't I? I read them without showing them to you. They were right in front of me on the screen. I could have shown them to you. There they are, one more shot. The verses I just read to you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Thank you, Don. I'm still getting the hang of this, folks. Thank you for your patience, for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you. All right. So verse 24. This is Peter quoting Psalm 20, excuse me, Psalm 16. All right. 
or he will be. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, Peter in his sermon, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him, capitalized, impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? Jesus is life. He is life. You can't put life to death. He is the very essence, the originator of life. He's God Almighty. Can't keep him dead. Is the proof is proof in the pudding. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 25, for David says of him, and this is the quote from verse six, um, Psalm 16. In fact, verses 25 through 28 here in Acts chapter 2 are all from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I, notice these are capitalized, I will not be shaken. 26, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. This is David. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then in verse 29, Peter comes back to explain what they've just read, what he has just shared with them. And what does he say? Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So in other words, if anyone had any doubts about whether or not David died and was buried and that his body decayed, all they had to do was go to the tomb and dig it up and they'd find his bones. Okay, David is not, was not talking specifically about himself in all of those, passages, those verses we just read. So he goes on to explain the Apostle Peter here. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he, capitalized, was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Why? You remember, right? He was raised on the third day. Raised on the third day. Verse... Here we go. Verse 32. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And he's probably showing all of the 120 other, or the other people making up the 120 that were there. I dare say there were those in the crowd that may have been witnesses as well that he's speaking to. Entirely possible. So read with that me, read verse 32 with me, will you? It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, since he has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. Again, he's speaking to that speaking of tongues, people speaking a language that they couldn't possibly know how to speak as though they were native. Supernatural power from on high, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the Holy Spirit himself, brought this on. <clears throat> so, isn't it clear? Do I need to make Peter's sermon any more clear to you? He's making it crystal clear to the Jews who are his audience. That Jesus, let's, let's go, 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven... But he himself says, and this again is the quote, the Lord said to my Lord, Jehovah said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
our Lord is and will always be victorious over his enemies. Will always be victorious. Joel was speaking of the wrath of God at one point in what we just read previously. The wrath of God. He is warning people against the wrath of God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay? And we come to the final verse. And wow, I'm not that far over. Therefore. You know, whenever you come to the therefore, you all know this saying. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you ask yourself, what is it there for? And you go back. Okay? So he said all, or the old saying that some comedians like to say, I told you all of that so that I can tell you this. All right? And that's what he's doing here. And he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, who's he been speaking of? Jesus. Him, capital H, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Boldness. Man, I almost want to laugh when I look at this. <laughs> wow, Peter. You've got a steel spine now, brother. I love it. I love it. But you know, <laughs> I was working on this sermon when it dawned on me. And I began <laughs> crying when it dawned on me, and I'm going to try not to do that right now. But I want to, you to understand that Peter is preaching a salvation message to the very people who tortured and killed our Lord and Savior for their salvation. Our Lord loves them enough to give them an opportunity to tell them the gospel truth. That while you did all these evil things, you can be forgiven your sins because this was part of my plan. Don't you understand? How much love is that? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together to bring a salvation message to the very people who murdered Jesus. That is the message we get to share. Do you understand? It is the message we have the privilege, the honor of sharing. Okay, calm down, Stan. I'm going to close with a few other verses on this subject. Romans 1.4, note takers. Who has declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit, capital S, of holiness? What's the Spirit of holiness? The Holy Spirit. By the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. No one speaking by the Spirit. When someone says anything bad about Jesus, there's no Holy Spirit in them. I don't care if they sing Christian songs. I don't care what else they say. If they tell you Jesus is not Lord and Christ, they are not of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit does not reside in them. And the verse goes on and says, no one can say Jesus is Lord. And I will add, and mean it. Except by the Holy Spirit. Except by the Holy Spirit. And finally, verse uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. 
Paul, and all of these are Paul's writings. For this reason also, God highly exalted him with a capital H and bestowed on him with a capital H the name which is above every name and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue. Does that mean everybody's going to get saved? No. It most certainly doesn't. Scripture's crystal clear. Some people will say this begrudgingly before they're tossed into the eternal, fly, eternal flames of hell. And those of us who are in Christ will say it joyfully in eternity. And this is to the glory of God the Father. All of it is to the glory of God the Father, our sovereign Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much for listening to that message. I sincerely hope you get it all and get all of it. I've done the best that I can in my limited ability, but I am trusting almighty sovereign God that this message speaks to you. We have an opportunity. A wondrous, glorious opportunity with eternal rewards in heaven forever and ever to share Jesus. Please, consider it. Consider it. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being firmly in control. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to participate in your plan of salvation by sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that he was born of a virgin, that he, was <clears throat> that he lived a sinless life so that he could die as the perfect spotless Lamb of God on the cross for us that all of this was according to the plan, that after he died as the spotless lamb of Christ on the cross, that he was dead and buried and was raised from the grave on the third day, resurrected forevermore, never to die again, resurrected to prove that he was in fact Lord and Christ, and that in him we may have salvation, and sanctification forevermore. Thank you, Lord, that if for those of us who will turn from our sin, turn away from our sin, repent of our sin, and turn towards Jesus, and trust him that he paid the eternal punishment for us. He took the wrath of God for us, so we don't have to. Because those of us who are in Christ, Scripture says, are no longer under condemnation. That is such a wonderful gift, Lord. What a wonderful, loving, amazing God you are. And we thank you all for it. In Jesus' name, amen.